This is the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. We're pleased to have with us today attorneys Jim Boyers and Robert Simmons from the law firm Wynn & McLaughlin in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jim Boyers is a partner and trial lawyer who represents clients in complex matters involving multiple parties arising from product liability, construction, and environmental claims. His work has included multiple multi-district litigation, or MDL, matters in federal court. Jim often works on e-discovery strategy, including the negotiation of and court arguments about search terms, the handling of data from complex databases, and standing orders for production of such discovery. Jim also organizes review efforts, including contract reviewers and applying appropriate technology to reduce client costs and to serve their litigation goals. Robert Simmons focuses his practice on the areas of business litigation, product liability, and other civil litigation matters. Robert also has significant electronically stored information, or ESI, background, and e-discovery experience in large-scale complex litigation often involving multiple parties, as well as smaller matters where electronic data must be handled effectively at a much smaller scale. And gentlemen, thank you both very much for joining us today. Thank you, John. We appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Okay, today's podcast discussion is on social media's impact on cases. And for our first question today, for Robert, can you tell us what is social media? When we think of social media, we think of a posting-type media that allows you to an electronic message um, into the, the electronic ether, as it were, that will reach the public or a smaller segment of the public. And when we think about that, we think about things like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, but within that definition, we can also include uh, instant messaging or even personal email. Arguably, uh, the old listservs from the old days were like the first kind of execution of the concept of what social media might be, where you send out an email to a group of people who are interested in insurance litigation or knitting or what have you, um, and then they can respond and interact. Uh, social media is rapidly evolving, though. We've come a long way from the listers of old. You know, we had MySpace, and now Facebook and LinkedIn are the dominant players. But every day, there are newer apps that are coming out toward this same sort of thing, where you can communicate and share with you know, the public at large or um, a group of people that have a, a shared interest. So now we have things like Snapchat, uh, WhatsApp. Um, some of the lesser-known players that we've seen coming through in litigation are like Marco Polo, Tumblr, Keep, Mastodon, uh, Slack. Um, every day there's something new. So when you're talking about social media in the context of litigation, it's really important to know your clients and the opposition. And when you're trying to decide you know, what is social media for your case, uh, it's really important to ask broad and narrow questions during your custodian interview to figure out what social media is going to be implicated. Um, the more tech-savvy or younger that your clients are or your opposition is, the more likely you're going to see something that the typical lawyer has never heard of. Um, you may even see things that even seasoned discovery lawyers may not know of just because there are all these new apps that are coming out just about every day. So as a you know, practice point, I they're trying to decide what is social media for your case. Um, you're going to want to make sure that you're closing out your witnesses and depositions and your written discovery requests uh, in such a way that you catch things that may have not been on your radar, things outside you know, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and so on. 
Okay, thank you, Robert. And Jim, can you tell us why social media is important in your cases? We are uh, looking at social media in almost every case. I think uh, in some cases it's more important than others. But folks, when they're on social media, whether they're posting or communicating via instant message or email, are often unguarded. Um, Or, in some cases, they may exaggerate the truth. But the bottom line is, with either approach, it gives you open access, if they're public with their social media, to uh, get a a view of the the implications of social media before the formal discovery gets started. Also, we can see inconsistencies between what people are saying in their discovery responses and what they've posted on social media. Sometimes uh, we can see photos and video evidence uh, and get to know a party before um, the, the case is really getting right. So that can help to develop strategy and may give you the opportunity to do early depositions. Um, another thing we see is people utilizing in commercial cases. We've seen this in non, uh, non-compete cases and trade secret cases, folks using their personal email accounts to obtain and transfer data. And I think they do this based on a false belief that there is an inherent privacy protection for their personal email. But if you craft your discovery carefully uh, and, and target it, uh, you can get to people's personal email and text, and that evidence can be invaluable to proving violations of employment agreements. Now, you know, certain younger segments, like Rob referred to, may be more careful with email and less careful with text and instant messaging. Um, The thing there is that a lot of attorneys have argued that text messages are too burdensome to deal with. Well, courts are a lot less sympathetic to that argument, and the technology makes it much easier uh, to get to that information these days. Finally, uh, I I think that um, that there are uh, sometimes issues with... uh, ephemeral messaging, and that means people using platforms where uh, messages get deleted. Um, That can present a variety of challenges, and you may need forensic experts to deal with those things. Okay, thank you, Jim. Uh, Robert, what ethical obligations do attorneys have with respect to preserving client social media ESI? Well, you start with the Rules of Professional Conduct 1.1. the key takeaway with the ethical obligations is that in 2019, social media e-discovery is essentially just discovery. Um, you know, we've seen attorneys making arguments that uh, data that resides on Facebook Cloud, for example, isn't within their custody or control, or it's um, not reasonably accessible because it's too burdensome. And there's a fair amount of federal case law and growing body of state case law that really says that those arguments just are not winners. So when we start talking about the ethical obligations, we're talking about a duty to preserve, just as you would see for email or paper documents being applied to social media. Now, the word gets tricky with social media is privacy status. Um, And we've seen a lot of this where the duty to preserve and the um, privacy settings that are available to you in social media seem to conflict in some ways. So, hypothetically, uh, you have a client who's posting something on Facebook that 
if they were being a little more judicious, they might not have posted that on a public forum. You know, as the attorney, what can you do? Um, again, the core takeaway here is preservation. So when we talk about the privacy settings, there have been a couple of state laws that have issued opinions that say, sure, you can actually have your client increase the privacy settings of that regrettable post so that it's you know, not in full public view, but you need to preserve it. Uh, a couple of them have even gone even further. For example, the Florida State Bar said, you can even delete it from a Facebook server if you preserve it so that it's available to the opposing party. Um, and that's actually been tested, at least in the Western District of New York, where you had a case where a client had deleted a bunch of, or increased the privacy settings, I should say, uh, from Facebook so that no one could see it, but the information was still there. It was still available to be produced uh, for a discovery request. So there were no sanctions issued. Um, beyond that, you have a duty to educate your clients about you know, the, the need to preserve evidence. So there's another case that came out of the District of Nevada where you had a, a younger client. She deleted a bunch of things from her Facebook. Um, the attorney goes in front of the court once it comes up on a hearing for spoliation and says, hey, you know, my client is a, a, a younger woman. She deletes things in a normal course for working with Facebook. Um, and the court didn't buy it. Uh, the court said pretty explicitly that you know, once she retained counsel, it was her attorney's obligation to inform her about the duty to preserve and make sure that that was done. And that the consequence of that, of that was a, an adverse inference instruction. Um, you know, more recently, in some of the cases we've dealt with here at Wooden, we had an opposing party who did not educate the clients on the duty to preserve and all sorts of things that missing, such as text messages, emails, uh, some things in databases. So we're going a little bit beyond social media, but because social media discovery is just discovery, the same thing could be applied. Um, and because of the you know, full-scale failure to inform the client about that duty to preserve, we have a recommendation for a, a default judgment. So the consequences for either failing to preserve or failing to educate the client about you know, their are So, Rob, how do you go about obtaining social media evidence? Well, there are a few ways, and it really depends on where you're trying to obtain the data from. Um, I like to think of it in three buckets, you know, client-side data, opposition data, and potentially third-party data. Um, now, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, the courts have pretty consistently held over the last few years that social media, ESI, electronically stored information, is within your you know, custody control and you are obligated to produce it. Even though it may sit on Facebook servers or Instagram servers, you control it, uh, so it is subject um, to production. So when you're talking to your clients, you want to make sure that you identify all of those sources and not let any of those things that you might need to preserve fall through the cracks. And once you've identified them, most platforms have a self-service download option for a cost-effective collection. Um, you don't necessarily need to bring in a third-party ESI, forensic examiner, or anything like that, depending on the case, of course. Um, so you can consider using that self-service download as a method for snapshot preservation. So, you know, in the case that we talked about earlier, where there are some things that you might want to increase the privacy settings, you can go ahead and download the entire profile to make sure it's preserved and then adjust those privacy settings accordingly. Now, the, the catch with that is, depending on data volume, um, they can take a long time. Um, 
and a lot of it might not be relevant to the case when you're doing these wholesale downloads. So you want to plan ahead towards downloads and reviews. I know in one case we had a particularly active Facebook user um, where it literally took three days for Facebook to compile the exploits into a downloadable format. And then the review of all that data was, um, it took quite a bit longer than that. So when you're talking about these social media like exports, you have deadlines for production, make sure you take into account that it's not necessarily the fastest process in the world as you plan ahead. And the other thing to consider is that some of these social media platforms have this ephemeral data, like that. Snapchat is probably the most famous example, where messages essentially disappear after a certain amount of time. So a lot of times with these sorts of messaging platforms, you can't delay on when you're going to do that collection and preservation if there's you know, important relevant data that you know is there. Um, sometimes delay can lead to deletion, and that deletion could lead you into trouble with the court. Now, when we're talking about opposition data, I mean, Rule 34 applies. So just as with your stuff, uh, it's subject to production. Proportionality also applies. So when you're crafting your discovery request, you want to be able to articulate uh, why you're asking for what you're asking for and why it's relevant and proportional to the case. Um, the case law we've seen generally doesn't support demanding, you know, every single post on Facebook they've ever had or... You know, having them hand over their passwords so that you can inspect their profile. Uh, you need to be able to tailor your request to be a little more narrow than that. Uh, another thing to consider with opposition data is preservation matters. Um, this helps you with the ephemeral data on their side. Uh, when you send out that preservation letter to put them on notice that these things, you know, for example, their Snapchat might be relevant to the case, uh, this you know, tells them that they need to collect it pretty soon, and if they don't, within a reasonable time after that preservation letter, well, now you set yourself up for potentially uh, seeking sanctions later on down the road. And then when we're talking about third-party data, uh, you've got Rule 45, which is the third-party rule, um, allows you to get a lot of that same data from non-parties. And those non-parties are, again, subject to the rule where the social media is within their control, and they would have to produce it. Um, You've also got publicly available posts. You know, for example, uh, third parties might not have the same privacy settings where they you know, tag an op opposition uh, uh, party uh, in a post that you can't see from the opposition's profile because you know, it's got the privacy settings locked down, but you can see it from the third party who is maybe not as careful. Um, now, the thing that you might have to worry about with obtaining social media from third parties um, is if, for example, they already deleted it, and now you want to try and get the residual data directly from the social media platform. And that can actually be a bit of a challenge because of the Stored Communications Act. We can talk about that in a little more depth. So, Jim, can you tell us what are the challenges with working directly with social media platform providers? Sure. Uh, I'll start with the client. Uh, number one is uh, making sure that uh, you understand each platform and what you can download from it. Uh, typically, you can get that information from from the website itself. Uh, and you want to be careful when you're assessing, for example, if you're going through it with your client and their login credentials, that you don't uh, inadvertently modify um, any of the metadata or entries that, that are already there or delete them. Um, then, uh, 
the process of downloading the information. You want to make sure who you want to do that. You just want your client to do it um, and uh, save yourself an extra witness. Uh, you as an attorney certainly don't want to make yourself a witness for the process of downloading it, uh, but you want to make sure that it's done properly. So that's something to think about. And then when you present it, these downloads uh, often come in HTML files. They don't always look exactly the way uh, things look when you go on to Facebook or, or otherwise. So you need to think through how you're going to present it effectively and also to the extent the metadata is relevant, how you're going to utilize the, the metadata and present it in court in a way that's acceptable to the judge and the opposing party. Um, then when you're dealing with opposing parties um, and third parties, Rob mentioned the Stored Communications Act, which is found at 18 U.S.C. Section 2701. Essentially, uh, you know, if you're dealing with the party who is the account holder, they have control and they can get to it. But if you're running into difficulties or denials of the existence of information and you want to go directly to the platform, they're going to be limited in what they can share under the FCA. That means uh, you may be able to find out communications were made on a given day between people, but you won't be able to get to the substance of those communications. Um, and if you're going directly to the provider uh, and trying to do a subpoena, um, they're, they're often very difficult procedures that require you to go out of state to get that information. So it takes time and it takes money. And um, if there's been, you're trying to get some record of deletion of social media, they don't really maintain audit logs for a long period of time. So you want to get out there on the front end, get the providers on notice to ask them to preserve things uh, relevant to your case. And finally, it, it, this happens more in criminal cases than civil cases, but sometimes there are allegations that accounts are fake and they aren't the party's account. Uh, or that someone got unauthorized access and put fake information on their account. So that's something to keep an eye out on and be prepared for. So, Jim, can you also tell us what are some common problems with social media productions that you receive from opposing parties? Sure. I think, um, you know, in state court cases especially, uh, we see a lot of people relying on screenshots. And screenshots may have their place, uh, you know, especially if it's a, a text or something of that nature. But if it's a screenshot of a photograph, uh, we take real issue with that because they can be distorted through the screenshot and printing process, and you lose the metadata associated with that material as well. Um, in, in fact, we recently had a, a fight in a, a case that went to trial where we were initially provided printed uh, copies of digital images, and we had to, to fight to get the original digital images. When we got them, we were able to demonstrate that the photos were just the printing process and in itself materially altered the photos, uh, and that they had lost many of the digital images that they printed. Um, so again, w when you go down this path, it, people don't do things the right way in terms of preservation. Uh, with social media, you may have a spoliation circumstance, and certainly it worked for us in that case. We also see broad objections um, to social media discovery, arguments of, of burden 
from a technological standpoint and from a privacy standpoint. So it's important to target the discovery and to be able to educate the opposing party in the court about why it's not as burdensome as claimed. Um, and so you have to be able to communicate in a non-technical language uh, what the technology can and can't do. Um, and we see that uh, folks are getting more educated every day on the technology side, but uh, it's important to take the time to be as clear as possible as to why you need the discovery you're getting and why it's not so complicated for the other side to provide it. Um, finally, I think when you're dealing with productions from opposing parties or third parties, you can't just assume they're going to agree to stipulate as to the authenticity of anything they provide. Um, it may be that they'll do that, but I, I think the safest thing to do is to have requests for admissions to help establish the authenticity of anything that you anticipate you're going to use at trial. Don't wait till the last minute. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was Jim Boyers and Robert Simmons from the law firm Wood and McLaughlin in Indianapolis, Indiana. And special thanks to today's producer, Frank Bowinkle. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to our webpage, www.ambest.com slash claims resource. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best Insurance Professionals and Claims Resource is the top website for locating qualified professionals and need-to-know insurance information for the claims market. Brought to you by AMBest, the world leader in insurance industry information. Visit ambest.com slash claims resource.